Well, if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open up to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have extras under the chairs of the center aisle. You can open those up to the book of Ephesians. It's about oh, three quarters of the way through the Bible. Even if you don't have one of those, you can just open up your phone's browser, search Ephesians 2. We'll be reading from the ESV version, and I'll do the rest. We'll be going from, from verse 1 all the way through verse 10 this morning. Biblias al libro de Efesios, capítulo 2, versículos 1 a 10. All right. This is the fourth sermon in this new sermon series in the book of Ephesians. Paul's letter to the church at the city of Ephesus. Probably more like a bunch of house churches in the ancient city of Ephesus. And we heard, track with me here, in the first sermon several weeks ago, a quote from from an old theologian, and he said, said, if you would do the best with your life, find out what God is doing in your generation and throw yourself wholly into it. And that makes sense, doesn't it? If you want to do the most with the life you have, find out what God is doing and get into that. And you heard from us that the message of Ephesians is effectively the Apostle Paul telling the church at Ephesus and telling us, that the church is what God is doing in the world. Throw yourself in. And then, in the next message, we heard, we heard that, that God's grand redemptive purposes have been to choose a people for Himself from before time and eternity past. And then Paul, in the second half of chapter 1, he prays for the filling of the Spirit that they... The, the church in Ephesus would know the power that is at work in the midst of them and that that, that that same Spirit would illumine their minds to know and understand the wisdom of God. So in other words, God, Paul is saying that God planned, He purposed, He chose, He empowers, He raised Jesus. And then finally, in chapter 2, verse 1, we read, and you... Finally, we get to see in this awesome picture where I fit in. And you were dead. You were dead. So with that, let's read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead. In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of all of men. But God, <laughs> but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, 
even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not result of work. So that no one may boast. For we are his workmen, created in Christ Jesus for good work, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk. God's word. Would you pray for me? Heavenly Father, what a vision we've just received. What a sobering vision we've seen of who we are apart from Christ. But I pray that just as, as Paul prayed in, in chapter 1, that we would be able to comprehend, that we would be able to know and understand what is heard. I pray that your Spirit would help us to understand these things and understand them not merely by, by head knowledge, but by faith. Would we, by understanding these by faith, grace and give I remember my first um, open casket funeral. I was in third grade. It was actually one of my friends, um, and I wasn't I wasn't prepared for it. I at the moment I didn't really understand the gravity of what was happening, but, but I remember walking up to that casket and looking in and, and seeing a, a body. And though the, the, the body had been prepared to be presentable, it was jarring to see a person with no life, a person that I, I used to play in the playground with, a person that I had known person with no life in them. Underneath the makeup and underneath the nice clothes was a body. Oh, no, no heartbeat empty. Body rigid from the calcium in, in the cells leaking out the rest of the body. No brainwave, no breath, no heartbeat, no movement, no life. Last week, Jeff brought up zombies in a sermon. I'm going to do it again. Some sort of record here. But it, if you want to find out why Jeff brought it up, listen to last, last week's sermon. It's a sermon worth listening to. But I want you to consider zombies again this week. And I want you to consider this question. Why do they capture our curiosity? Why, why do zombies and Frankenstein's monster and Dracula and, and walking mummies, why do they capture the 
the curiosity of, of the entertainment-seeking throng. Because they're dead. Because they're dead. And our imagination, our human imagination, has conjured up this, this, this fascinating possibility that what if, what if these dead things came to life? But for those of us who have actually seen the grim, unentertaining, grievous reality of death, we know one thing to be true. The dead cannot live. They have no ability in themselves to live, and they have no ability in themselves to seek out a way to become alive. And yet Paul says that apart from Christ, See, the existence of the church itself. The church is what God is doing in the world. The existence of the church itself is a marvel, is a mystery, because all of the candidates who, who might be qualified to join it are dead people. The church is a mystery because all of the candidates for its members are dead. The church is what God is doing in the world, but how did anyone come to become a member of the church? Paul prays for, for the Spirit to empower the church, but how does anybody come by the Spirit if, if everybody is dead? That's what Paul wants you to consider here in Ephesians 2, 1-10. through 10. Look, look back in your Bibles at, at chapter 1, verses 18-19. through 19. We looked at this last week. Paul prays, and there, there's, there's an unnatural chapter break here at the beginning of chapter 2. There, there almost shouldn't be a, a chapter break because Paul prays in 18 and 19. He says, he says, I pray that you may know. He says, I want you to know something. I want you to know what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward you who believe in Christ according to his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So in other words, Paul's saying, friend, I want you to really understand God's power toward you. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated him in his position as Lord over all creation, that same power has been worked in you and I want you to really understand it. And Paul says here in these 10 verses, this is the power of God that I want you to understand. What follows here in these 10 verses? This is my single favorite passage in the Bible. All of God's Word is inspired and breathed out by God Himself. I love it. I love it. It is one of the clearest, if not the single clearest explanation of the gospel and its effect on humanity anywhere in the Bible. They're on holy ground. Do not leave here unaffected by what we're about to go This is the power of God in you that you need to understand. You need to understand it. 
So what is that power that you need to understand? Well, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 really can be summarized very simply. That the grammatical structure can be summed up to one sentence that that starts in verse 1 and and continues in verse 5. Paul starts, he says, and you were dead, and you were dead. Then verse 5, but God made you alive together with Christ. That, that's Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. The summary is, you were dead, but God made you alive together with Christ. That's the logic. Paul's saying, that's the power I want you to understand. You were dead, but God made you alive together with Christ. But, but Paul says, no, no, you don't understand fully enough. So I'm not just going to give you that, that bare sentence. I'm going to give you these 10 verses. I'm going to fill that. You need to understand and be effective. <coughs> so, to sort of structure these 10 verses, we're going to have three, three points to walk through this passage this morning. Three points to structure the rest of our time together. First, the, the power of we're gonna We're going to examine the, the power of Secondly, power of God. The power of you, the power of God, and then thirdly, the you. Grace. The you, the grace. Okay. Okay, follow closely here. Pay attention. This is, this is central stuff. Let's start with the first point. And again, wh- whether you are Christian or not a Christian, whether you are on the fence You've been a Christian for 30 years to understand. The first point, the power of Here's the power of you. Let's read verses 1 through 3 one more time. You were dead. And the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once live in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. James Montgomery Boyce says, (laughs) very honestly, this is one of the most pessimistic pictures of human nature found anywhere. Not just in the Bible, anywhere. And you might think, wow, this, this, is, this is pretty rude of Paul. This is pretty harsh. Let, let me protest against that and say, this isn't Paul being harsh. Paul being honest. Paul's saying, this is who we actually are. And again, you need to understand. I want you to understand. In order to rightly understand the power, you have to understand how little power you apart from Christ. Paul says, I want you to see how glorious God is and what he's created in the church. You need to understand who the candidates are. And, and if you are a believer, if you are a Christian, this is a picture of who you were and it's important that we have an accurate and constant understanding of who we, who we used to be, where we came from. Oh, it humbles us, right? You're not a Christian. It's a picture of your present state now. 
foretaste of what's to come. It doesn't have to stay that way. Actually, it shouldn't stay. You can leave here today in a different state. So with that preface, here's who the candidates are. Here are the candidates. One, they're spiritually dead. Dead. No lie. But not just dead. Dead in sin. Sin is what causes what causes the condition of deadness. The condition that causes spiritual death is called sin. And sometimes we'll, we'll breeze by a definition of sin and, and say something to the effect of sin is, is rebellion against God. And you say, well, gosh, my kids rebel against me sometimes, but that's hardly worthy of sending them to hell. So Paul's saying, you were dead in sin. Let me, let me explain that a little further. Let's not just breeze by this and underestimate the condition of sin. First, not, not only were you dead in sin, you walked in sin. It wasn't something you did occasionally. It was your way of life. Secondly, not only did you walk in sin, you followed the course of this world. Not only did you not follow God, but what you followed instead was the dominant course of this world, which is ruled by the prince of power of the air. And the air is the spiritual realm. Who is the prince of the spiritual realm? Satan. Satan, who is subservient to God, who is subjected to God's authority, but who still has a very real power in this world. And because we cannot see that spiritual realm, we minimize its danger, like carbon monoxide. It's odorless, tasteless, and can't see it. So it doesn't seem as harmful, but it'll kill you just the same. Contrary to popular belief, there are only two ways to live. Following God or following the prince of the power of the air. And that's what Paul is saying. We're not following God. You were following the only alternative. Following the prince of the power of the air. Who is the spirit who is at work in the sons of disobedience? Effectively, the spirit who is at work in all who are living in rebellion against God. But added to that, we also, look at verse 3, live in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Translated, we're living it up. Living it up. Trying to extract all of the happiness and the fun and the pleasure out of this life that we possibly could. If we wanted to do it, we did it. If we tried it, if we wanted to try it, we tried it. If we wanted to say it, we said it. If we wanted to to look at it or, or lust at or be sexually intimate with it, we did. Now, all of the desires of our body and our mind. And this sounds like freedom, doesn't it? I was just thinking about this yesterday and thinking, man, those who don't carry out the desires of the, the body and the mind, I think a lot, a lot of people would call those people squares. People who are bound and restricted. But I want you to think of two people. Two people who jump out of an airplane. Okay? 
One of them is bound, or at least appears to be bound. And another one is free, or at least appears to be free. Now the one who is bound is bound by a harness and all these lines leading up to this canopy thing up here. The one who appears to be free is twisting and flipping and diving through the air, the cold air rushing past his face at 180 miles per hour, and is free, unencumbered by anything. But is he really bound by Because he's bound by gravity. He's bound. The one who appears to be bound by his parachute is actually the most free because he's free to live. He's free to know that he is safe from harm. Safe from death. See, this illusion of freedom, of, of carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, this is, this is the illusion of freedom. It's actually slavery to sin, which is slavery. Look back at verse 2. You were living it up, and so you were a child of wrath. Lived in sin followed Satan unknowingly, unknowingly, deceived into, into believing that, that it was the right path to life. And you lived as though your sinfulness was your freedom. And because of that, you deserved God's righteous wrath for today. Is what Paul is saying. And just in case there's any confusion, Paul says this is the resume of every candidate there ever was. All mankind. He's, he's not selectively saying, yeah, that's how Gentiles are, that, that's, how, that's how Jews are, or that, that's how this race or this ethnicity or this kind of people are. He's saying, no, no, no. There are only two ways. If you're not in Christ, this is who all mankind is. And the power of you to save yourself is the same power that an actual dead person in the grave has of putting breath back in their lungs. If you were here a few months ago during our series in Mark, we, we were in Mark 10 where Jesus says, let the little children come to me. And he says, for anyone who does not enter the kingdom of God like a child, cannot enter it. And we, we heard in that sermon that what Jesus is saying is that in the ancient world, children had nothing to contribute. The, the adults in the ancient world looked at, looked at children as though they had nothing to contribute. All they could do was see. So Jesus is saying, the only way you can enter the kingdom of God is with the empty hands of faith. All I can do is see. I have nothing to I have nothing to give. And in some ways, Jesus was going soft on his ear. Paul is set straight. Because children can only receive. They have nothing to contribute. They have empty hands. Dead people also have empty hands. But <laughs> dead people can't even bring their empty hands forward to receive anything. That's a predicament that Paul 
is setting forth. He's saying, even if you could receive something, you don't have any life within you to reach forward and keep. No person has in themselves any merit worthy of being saved, nor the ability to save themselves in any way. It's these verses which help us to, to understand why something like what we saw in chapter 1, like election, is necessary, and why our salvation is and must be by grace. Grace is our only hope. Brings us to the second point. The first point, the power of the power of you is pretty big. Second point, the power of God. You know why this is my favorite passage in the Bible? It's this turn in verse four. These two sudden, unexpected. better work. We could not have hoped to have heard better words. Because it tells us the only one who can do something about this, he must have done something. So what what did he do? Well read verses four through through seven with me. But God, being rich in mercy, oh this is getting good because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, no way, made us alive together with Christ. <laughs> By grace you've been saved. And, and there's an and, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so, to the, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It wasn't, but God left. It wasn't, but God still judged us. It wasn't, but God left us to ourselves. It wasn't, but God gave us a a good self-help book to read. It wasn't, but God gave us a good strategy to follow. But God, what did he do? Well, he did two things in particular. First, he made us alive together with Christ. And this is where I just feel completely insufficient as <laughs> to convey to you the magnitude of what is contained in these words, but God made us alive together with Christ. This is the doctrine of regeneration, of new birth. God could have spent forever pleading and threatening and enticing, hoping we would choose salvation, but that would be futile because dead people can't respond to such things. So he made us alive. <laughs> he made us alive. He did it. He just did it. He made us alive and he raised us up with Christ. And don't miss this. Verses, or chapter 1, verses 18 through 19. Remember, remember, it says that God made 
Jesus alive and raised him up. So we're looking at a, at a mirror image of what God did in Christ and what he has now done in us. So by the same power, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God takes us from the lowest of lows, death, to the highest of highs, eternal life, reigning, reigning right beside Christ. Which is something we have yet to experience. But notice that Paul uses the past tense in that verse. In verse 6. Raised us up and seated us. And you go, well, I'm not raised up yet and seated next to Christ. Well, remember chapter 1, verse 14. When Paul says that he gave you his spirit, which is the guarantee of your inheritance. So sure is your guarantee by the Spirit that it, it is as if it is a past done reality. So sure is your eternal inheritance. He made you alive together with Christ, raised you up with Him. And how does Paul summarize this work of God? Verse 5 You have been saved. You have been saved. You've been saved. You were falling, bound to gravity and death. And he put a parachute on your back. He put a parachute on your back. He lifted your dead hand and extended it toward Christ to receive life in Christ. He put breath in your lungs, blood in your veins, and energy in your spiritual muscles. He did it. He stepped in the gap. He didn't have to. He took the initiative toward us when we had chosen Satan over him. He didn't have to. He raised us up from the grave that we had dug for ourselves. He didn't have to. He gave you the greatest gift imaginable. He didn't have to. So let me ask one question in two different ways. Here's the question. Why did God give you this gift? He did not have to. It is, it is mind-boggling that he did. So why? So here's, here's the question. Why did God give you this gift? The first way I'm going to ask this is, why did God give you this gift? this gift? Why did God give me this gift? Verse 4 gives a very clear answer to this question. God being rich in mercy. Because of the great love which we love. So here's Paul's answer to that question. He gave you this gift because he's a merciful God. He's a love. Mercy and love. Oh, you mean he found something in us worth loving and so he loved us because we were lovable. Is that, is that, is that what you're saying? Oh, no, no. Look at verse 5. Paul anticipates that, that question. And he says, no, no. Even when you were dead. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when you were dead. Not just dead, but dead in what? Dead in your trespass. Dead walking in your sin, away from Him, 
for the course of the even when that was what you were committed to doing. Because he is birth. This is what we call grace. If you've ever struggled, if you've ever struggled to explain grace to someone, just bring them to this passage. You heard in, in the first week of the sermon series that, that grace is God's ill-merited favor. His favor toward those who don't just not deserve it, but who deserve the opposite. But that even that doesn't really capture your affection. This does. Seeing who you were in verses 1 through 3, and then saying that God be rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved you, same question let me ask it a different way so the first first question is why did god give you this gift second way to ask this is why did god give why did he decide to just give it why didn't he make you earn it why did god give you this gift verse eight oh at these deeply on you. Scratch them into your heart so that you never forget them. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through It is the gift of God, not a result or so that no one may not a result of your works, only the result of God. That's the point. The grammar suggests that, that this, this is even referring to faith, which would make sense because you were dead. So, so regeneration, new life, even precedes faith. God gives the ability to, to, to have faith. It's like God filled your lungs and that exhalation was faith. Those lungs could only had to be filled first before an exhalation. And why? Why? A.T. Lincoln says, he puts it this way, and we'll say this again, it's all grace all the way. So that, verse 7, look down at verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ. In other words, it is all grace all the way so that those who come beyond you and after you might see how glorious the grace of God is. And know that salvation comes by His hand and His alone. He gets all the glory. Sounds just like chapter 1, verse 6, doesn't it? To the praise of His glorious grace. A.T. Lincoln says that the overall effect is to leave readers wondering not at their own exalted position, but at the immensity of God's grace. Which leave us 
death and didn't just bring us out of the grave, raised us up with Christ in eternal life to reign with him as co-heirs and inheritors of all of God's gifts. When Paul says back in in chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, I want you to understand the power of God for those who believe. A paraphrase of that prayer is Paul saying, I want you to be amazed by God. I want you to be amazed. And Paul's saying, you need to understand. When I'm saying this to you, when I say, you need to understand this, <laughs> what, what you should hear is, you need to understand and be amazed. and filled with joy by grace. Let me give this one point of application here before we move on to the third point. I want to address a particular group of people in this room. Those who are prone those who are Christians who are prone to experiencing guilt, condemnation, feeling like you're failing, more aware more aware of what you're doing wrong and what you're not doing. You feel like you think. You hear this. There is nothing worse to say about yourself or think about yourself than what Paul writes about you in verse 1. There is nothing worse than you could possibly say about yourself than what Paul writes in verse 1. On the other hand, there is nothing better that you could say about yourself than what Paul has said in fourth. And if you are a Christian, one of those is true. One of them is not true. If you are in Christ, if you have been made alive in Christ, and you have been raised up with him, verses 1 through 3 are your past reality. And your current reality is covered entirely with not one inch uncovered by John Stott says, what Paul does in this passage is to paint a vivid contrast between what you are by nature and what you become by God. fall into condemnation and feeling like you're a failure. You're losing sight of You're losing sight of what God has done in you in Christ by His Spirit. If you see God's grace in Christ toward you, you know you are loved by grace. You know you are an object of God's mercy no matter how how badly you've failed this week. You're an object of His mercy. You, you, you have been made alive in Christ. You have become a trophy of God's grace. However you feel about yourself, you are a trophy of God's grace, purchased by the very blood of the Son of God. How do you see yourself? Do you see yourself through the lens of your performance? 
Because Paul's saying your performance has nothing to do with who you are. He's saying in there. Or do you see yourself through the lens? Which lens do you see yourself through? Do you see yourself through the lens of your own performance? What you've done, how you've thought, what you've said, how you've done. Do you see yourself through the lens of grace? And Paul is urging you. He's saying, I want you to understand this. I want you to know this. You need to know this. Because this is who you are in Christ. With that, let's close by talking about what you become. Who you become in Christ. So the third point. First point being the power of you. Very depressing. The power of God. The most magnificent vision we could possibly receive. Third point. The, the you that grace made. It's important. And we're, we're looking at verse 10 here. Grace costs nothing. That's, that's one of the wonders of grace. It costs you nothing. It costs Jesus everything. It costs him his life on the cross. He paid it all for you. So that you have nothing to pay. Grace costs nothing. But it changes everything. And when I say it changes everything, it changes everything including your life once you have been saved. Paul is clear. Your works contributed nothing to your salvation. Nothing. But, that's not to say your works don't factor into the Christian life at all. In fact, take into account that chapters 4 through 6 of Ephesians are about good works that you should pursue. That's, That's Really, the whole thrust of chapters 4 through 6, and if, if you remember, chapters 1 through 3 are the indicatives, the, the realities and the truths that shape the Christian life. Chapters 4 through 6 are the imperatives, the, the, the life that should be walked out in light of those truths, the indicatives and the imperatives. And even chapter 4 starts off, look at chapter 4, verse 1. It's just a page 4, probably. He says, I therefore, a, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of this calling. So he's saying all this in the first three chapters, so far what we've covered in chapters 1 and 2, in light of all this, walk in a worthy manner. And he finishes this passage in chapter 2 in verse 10, moving in that direction. He wants to make sure that you don't just go, it's all grace, i got nothing to do. No, no, no. There are implications for your life. Grace has implications for your life. So he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has big plans for your good work. He has big plans for your good work. Salvation was not by good work. But results in good It doesn't earn you anything. It doesn't change who you are. It doesn't alter who you are in the least. Who you are has been defined by grace. But as you see, boy, oh boy, it changes life. It would be a mistake to think that all the verses we've read so far are about grace. 
and then that verse 10 is about work. That would actually be, that would be a mistake. I want you to read verse 10 again. Catch the emphasis here. For we are his work. Created by God. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here's the point. Even the good works that result from a saved life are empowered by grace. All of grace. All. You are saved by grace. You are sanctified by grace. You are, you are made alive by grace. And the power to live that life out to walk in newness of life, to walk not in sin, but to walk in a worthy manner. Grace. All by grace. So, here's where we're going to end off. Two points of application. Two, two ways for you to, to take this. And, and before we get to these two ways, let me just say, if you are not a Christian, and you heard verses 1 to 3, and you think, yeah, that is Know that you have, there's nothing you have to do. Nothing you have to earn. There, there are no steps you have to take to receive grace. All you have to do is place your faith in Jesus. Effectively, go to Christ and say, give me grace. Trust in His finished work on the cross for you. And if that sounds too simple and too amazing, it's not gospel. So if you want to talk about how you can move from death to life, how you can change from verses 1 through 3 to verses 4 through 10, I'd love to talk to you after. I'd love to extend that conversation. Talk to Jeff or whoever else is sitting next to But if you are a Christian, two things. First, do good work motivated by grace. Do good works motivated by grace. How do you do this? Well, this is a lifelong endeavor, for one. But let me just recommend a few books to you by one author, one author named Jerry Bridges. There are a few authors who are better at, at very simply explaining what grace-motivated obedience looks like. His books, like the Pursuit of Holiness, or Transforming Grace, or The Discipline of Grace. Any of those books. I'd love to buy one of those for you. I'm going to read one of those books. But Jerry Bridges explains, he says, how do you do good works motivated by grace? He says, it's by realizing and remembering that your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And realizing that your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need. If you're failing, God's grace is within yet again. If you're doing well, God's grace is what re- receives credit and is what you need to continue. In another place, he says to do good works motivated by grace means that you continually face up to your own sinfulness and then flee to Jesus through faith in His shed blood and righteous life. 
the living going back to the fountain over and over for restoration and for do good works motivated by grace. Read, read one of those books. And let's talk about it. Let's talk about it in small groups and in individual conversations. This is a great, huge topic of conversation to carry on. Second and last point of application. This is important. Don't miss this. Do hard after your Your unbelieving Your family Friend, don't know Christ. Let verses 1 3 the way you move you out of inaction, move you out of complacency toward their eternal destiny. Let it fuel you with an urgency and a passion for their salvation. They think they're free, but they're bound by gravity and death and can do nothing about it unless someone holds out the parachute of the saving work of Jesus Christ to them. And you pray that God gives them the ability to take that parachute and put it on them. But to watch them fall by you while you're sailing through the sky with your parachute on and go, that poor guy, sorry for him, hmm, too bad. Share with them the gospel of Jesus. All candidates to become members of God's global church are dead. Yet by God's amazing grace, a church full of living souls exists. Grace set us fire for the salvation of our nation. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. (laughs) Lord, we don't fully understand and we probably will never understand the fullness of the wonder of your amazing grace toward us in Jesus Christ. But we want to keep trying. (laughs) And we ask that you would continue to show us. And when we lose sight of it, Lord, would you bring it before us once again Would you help us to be a people who preaches the gospel to ourselves and to one another day in and day out that we would see more people come to saving faith by grace and that we would become a people who are more dependent on grace than we were the day before as we await the return of our Lord Jesus Christ when we will be raised up with him and seated with him at his right hand forever. It is in his name we pray.